welcome back to It's an Inside Job podcast. I'm your host, Jason Lim. Now, this podcast is dedicated to helping you to help yourself and others to become more mentally and emotionally resilient so you can be better at bouncing back from life's inevitable setbacks. Now, on It's an Inside Job, we decode the science and stories of resilience into practical advice, skills, and strategies that you can use to impact your life and those around you. Now, with that said, let's slip into the stream. Hey folks, welcome back to the show. I'm glad you can join me for a new week and allowing me to be part of your week. This week, I have a returning guest, Anakin R. Day. You can find her first episode with me in Season 4, Episode 3. So let me now use a few moments to reintroduce Anakin Day for any of those new to the show. Now, Anakin, she's a trailblazer in the realm of cultural strategy and corporate transformation. You know, Anakin has dedicated herself to reshaping organizational cultures, drawing from her extensive experience, including roles as chief culture officer for Tanbrook and cultured strategist for Cisco. Now, in today's episode, our primary focus will be on innovation and culture within organizations. We're going to delve deep into the essence of innovation, exploring how to cultivate it within the corporate landscape. Now, Anakin's expertise in fostering creativity and joy in workplaces will also underscore the vital role of innovation in fortifying organizational resilience. Now, as we navigate the intricate interplay between culture and innovations, her insights will illuminate the path toward building adaptable and resilient organizations. So without further ado, let's slip into the stream and meet Anakin Arday and explore the ideas of fostering innovation and culture. Welcome, Anakin. Welcome to back to the show. Thank you, Jason. I'm so happy to be here again. Maybe you could just briefly introduce who you are and what you do. Of course, I'm very happy to. Um, so yes, my name is Anakin Day. I I'm a culture strategist. I work with corporate culture. That's kind of my speciality. And I have been doing that for over 20 years now. Um, I have a company called Corporate Spring. And what we do, we help companies make their culture a strategy for growth. And uh, then I'm also an author. So I've written a book called Fly Butterfly. And I also do self-development courses uh, called Happy Life, Happy Work, which is an online training class. And recently, I've added to my portfolio things. <laughs> uh, since I just moved to Italy, I'm originally Norwegian, but I, I now live in Italy after uh, having spent quite a few years in California. And that is um, retreats. So I do chill, connect, create camps or retreats here in Tuscany a couple of times a year um, and having my first in a few weeks. So I'm very excited about that. So lots of fun things in there. But if you should kind of try to put like one word that... Uh, uh, is the essence of my career and also like professional passion. It is culture. And I would also like to add innovation <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, you, you started a company, you're a founder, you're an author, and now you've got, you, you've moved to different countries to start your, or to run your business. And now here you are in Tuscany uh, running retreats. So there's an innovative process. This episode is, is a part of a series I want to run this month on innovation. And I want to include culture into that. 
recently, uh, not too long ago, you wrote an article on LinkedIn about myths uh, and to bust those myths when it comes to cultures. So I was wondering, maybe we could explore some of those things around culture and then sort of circle back and how we connect this to sort of an innovative mindset or innovative culture. Would that be an okay roadmap for you? Absolutely. And and actually, I want to share like a quick story before that, because uh, when you when you said, uh, in a, you know, added innovation, uh, it just reminded me of something because I've been working with culture uh, on the inside of large companies for quite a few years. I was uh, part of Tenberg, which was um, a huge t- uh, technology success company uh, with a very, very strong focus on culture, as strong as it actually hired me as its chief culture officer. And this was back in 2002. That was long before people, most people talked about, you know, the importance of culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my job was to help build uh, the company to be able to do extraordinary things, uh, grow while keeping our values uh, and become the world leader in technology and video conferencing that we were aiming to to become. And um, it was all about innovation. But the interesting thing is we never talked about innovation. So, you know, it's it's a little bit like uh, the fish never talks about water. We never talked about innovation because that was everything that, you know, we, we stood for. It was all about challenging ourselves, thinking new, growing, learning, failing, um, trying again, you know, and, and mm-hmm. not letting limiting beliefs stop us for anything. And so I've been asked many times about innovation culture and the innovation culture that I helped build in Tanberg. And that, that made me just think that I very rarely use the word innovation. I talk about culture, but it is about creating a culture that enables innovation. So that's kind of how I, I talk about it. But yes, you're right. I also have a very you know, I'm passionate about innovation as such, but I don't think I use that word as much either, but I definitely do live by it. So, yeah. So thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. No worries. Well, may, maybe I'd like to kind of maybe start there. I mean, you, you've you come from a, obviously uh, a culture uh, of Tanberg originally that didn't have to use the word innovation because it was in its DNA as a company. From your perspective, how would you operationally define innovation? What is an innovative mindset? Well, I think in order to create an environment that allows innovation, it has to be very trusting. It has to be very free. It has to allow people to come up with crazy ideas and not being afraid to be ridiculed or uh, you know, not uh, being blamed if they make mistakes and all that. So it's very much about creating a a safe environment. Uh, we we talk a lot about psychological safety, which I think is is crucial in order to have that trusting relationships. Uh, it's about having a, a common purpose that everyone kind of knows why they're there and what they're working towards. And I think the most dangerous thing you can do if you want to have an innovative culture is to uh, limit people like also in the way they are organized or what they're asked to do and all that so you have very often you see companies where you have oh, over here is the innovation department like you you guys do innovation the rest of you do the work uh, but I believe like if everyone in the whole company knows that okay we're here to do something extraordinary and we all need to look at all the time how we can do things better differently uh, how we can take uh, chances just to become like the best version of, of what we can be as a team, as a company. So 
for me, it is. It always boils down to culture. It's the environment that you create. Uh, and without that kind of environment, it's very hard to make real innovation happen. And and I know this because I've, I've seen a lot of companies that are trying to figure out how to become more innovative and creative. But I always tell them, if you're not willing to do the hard work, which is actually creating a place where people dare to be innovative and they are inspired to be mm. innovative, you know, that is, that's going to be a hard nut, nut to crack. So. You know, innovation for me, you know, there's a number of adjectives that I could assign to that, such as change, such as creativity, such as curiosity. But an, an important element, I think, is also conflict. I mean, we if if we, we can come up with innovative ideas, but sometimes we can become so enamored with our own idea that we stick all our eggs into one basket. And if we don't learn to kill our darlings you know then we can get so we can get so jaded if our idea doesn't float and it sinks now i think part of an innovative culture from my understanding and again this is from a layman's perspective is that you need to be able to have some level of conflict to discuss ideas to play with ideas but to understand that not all ideas will take off that some will crash and burn and that we have to some extent you know, kill our darlings. What I mean by that, we can't be so locked in, so enamored on one particular idea because we've invested so much time. For me, innovation also means that there's a plethora of different ideas and that everyone brings in, you know, uh, a spectrum of different ideas to play with. I mean, what's your, some of your thoughts on this? Well, well, I have another great example to you of the first thing you talked about that you sometimes mm. have your darlings and this was back in in the Tamburg days uh, and we had you know the R&D department and we're working on lots of different products and, and solutions and all that right and then um, like once in a while and, and actually quite often there could be a, a team that had worked so hard on a project and they were so happy and they were so proud of their achievement and and they've given it all for such a long time for a year and then there's like a strategy meeting where you're actually looking at okay, what are, what is going to be our core uh, products, core business moving forward, and they actually had to kill some of those projects, even though they had gone really well, even though they had this team and they could have worked on it for a year and created something extraordinary. But being able to say, you know what, it was great, uh, you did an amazing job, but this is not going to be part of our. Uh, portfolio or strategies, we just have to stop this project. It's a really, really hard thing to do as a leader. And it's a really hard thing to experience as a person who's given their all and their, uh, you know, night and day for such a long time. But then again, you come back to culture. Because if everyone's there, they know they're there for a greater purpose. They're there for making the company and the, the team and these products go out in the world and, and make it a better world, which was what we really believed uh, and I still think, <laughs> to a large extent, we did in Tampa because we were one of the first ones who brought video conferencing to the world. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that people then accepted it and we even had like little like morning uh, time, like it was like a week or two, just like chill, work on some fun project before we start on the next one. But everyone understood the reasoning behind it. They respected it. They are, even though they didn't like it, um, 
there was also, a, you know, thanks to the culture uh, and a common understanding that sometimes that just happens. So, yes, you're so right. And I think you said another thing, which is extremely important, and that is you just cannot have egos in such a setting. Because if there's an ego and a person with his own or her own agenda who wants to be there and, and stand like a shining star and just like mm -hmm. they go to the deathbed to just like make this product live on, you know, that it will be of the wrong reasons. So you also need people to collectively buy into we here as a part of something bigger than ourselves and we're doing this together and it's not about me or you or them it's about all of us and I think when you create that kind of culture you know you can handle anything and you talk a lot about resilience I, I heard you talk about and, and I think that is like you create that kind of resilience uh, that you can take the ups and downs and the challenges that comes along the way because you're part of something bigger. You know, an innovative culture for me, it, it seems it requires a lot of investment, a lot of cultivating, because we can all be ego driven. I mean, we can get so dedicated to a certain project that to think that project is not going to be a part of a portfolio or part of a strategy moving forward. You know, that can gut many people, depending upon how invested. So to, to sort of front load, to try to minimize that, I don't think you can ever completely wipe that out, but to sort of mitigate some of that impact, taking it too hard when we have to kill a project. From your experience at Tanberg and obviously as consultant working in many different co companies, you know, how does how does a leadership, how does a team leader or a project head instill that kind of mindset? I mean, what needs how, how do we do this nuts and bolts? Hmm. You know, I'm just going to keep on repeating myself sometimes, but, you know, it, it boils down to culture again. But, of course, it is also a culture of leadership because the kind of leaders that I see are most successful in, in leading these kind of in, innovation cultures and are able to take people through also that painful process of, of you know, killing their project is the ones who really communicate and involve people, explain the why, you know, respect them uh, and and don't just sit there in an office and make a decision and tell people about it. They include people also in mm -hmm. the process of it, you know, so people kind of almost see it coming. And if not, even though they know they're not the final, have the final decision, it, there is just like a, an understanding that this can happen. And and also the respect and uh, for what has been achieved and celebration. So one of the, you know, greatest leaders... Um, I know of like in, in that area is a person who celebrates the losses and the failures as much as the wins, because in his opinion, uh, when you fail, you have tried something new, mm. you know, and if you don't fail, you just, you're sit still. And, and so he actually like believes in, in celebrating, uh, when something went wrong as well. So it was this project and this is a client of mine that, didn't work out as well, but he, he threw a party for the team who'd done that because they deserved, you know, uh, to be celebrated for that. Uh, they wouldn't be on the stage because they had the best product, but they were celebrated internally because they gave it a, their best and, and gave it a shot. And, and that's worth a lot as well. You know, a lot of what you say is a lot that we can, when we're talking about parenting, for example, right? We don't always want to judge a child or a teenager or a team member or any human being just simply based on the outcome because the outcome can shift depending upon variables. And a lot of the times we don't even know or we can't even see the variables in play. And so 
coming back to the effort, it's looking at the effort. You know, Carol Dweck called it uh, uh, the growth mindset, right? And not a fixed mindset. And it, it sounds like this client of yours, it, you know, he or she had their head in the right place because maybe it didn't cross the finishing line. But what we were celebrating is not so much the product, but the effort or the initiative and all the motivations and thoughts and the sweat and blood that went into trying to make that idea or product float. Is that what I'm understanding you're here? Or am I drawing too many parallels here with other things? <laughs> no, I, I, I love your parallels. Uh, I, I, no, it's so true. And growth mindset is key. I mean, when you talk about uh, innovation culture, growth mindset is key. Uh, and I call it the people long stocking uh, attitude. You know, she used to say, I've never done this before, so I'm sure I can figure it out. You know, and that's the whole thing. Yes, you haven't done it before, but that's exactly why you have to try to do it. Yeah, no one has... Uh, and, and the worst, absolutely worst you hear is like people, well, we've done this before and it didn't work. Well, let's try it again because it might work next time. You know, so it's that not being jaded and not like mm-hmm. stopping just because it didn't work out the first time. There's so many examples through history. Like people just had to try again and again and again and fail many, many times. And then they made it. So imagine how much innovation that hasn't happened mm-hmm. just because people gave up too early. So that is also as a leader to be also that cheerleader and be that like, having the torch, you know, showing the way and being the cheerleader and also the one, the comforter when, when things are going tough, you know, you can also be mm. the shoulder to cry. And, um, and it's all, you know, for me, always, when I talk about leadership, uh, it boils down to being human. It boils down to just as you do the parallel, you know, the, the parenting hundred percent. Yes. It's so much similarities there. Uh, I think if you're yeah, sometimes say you know if if you know how to be uh, a good parent, you will know how to be a good leader, and vice versa. You know, often when I'm running workshops and working with teams and such, I sometimes go back and share sort of my dad's philosophy that he constantly instilled in myself and my brother is that he used to say, you know, Jason, when you move into any situation, there's only two outcomes: you either succeed or you learn. And, you know, if you succeed, celebrate, take the time to celebrate before you move on. When you learn, it's just another way of saying when you flop up, fail and, you know, trip up, it's okay to feel whatever emotions, you know, disappointment or incompetence or what have you. Fine. Listen to the emotions, understand those emotions, but they do not define you. They define the situation maybe. But the question is, after you've got over that, and don't spend more than 24, 48 hours, you know, sinking in that motions. You can pity yourself for a bit, but pick yourself up, learn from the situation, adapt, and maybe in your vernacular, innovate. You know, move forward, evolve, adapt, grow, develop, whatever, whatever verb we want to use. So when when you speak of that, I, I I can almost hear my dad, you know, my dad's voice when he was on the planet saying that philosophy to me, even as uh, growing up. And I think that philosophy has always stuck with me, and it's it's given me a deep sense of resilience. And that's something I incorporate in a lot of my training. And I I hear you, Anakin. You almost we almost have the same philosophy in that sense. We use different language. But I, I think we are, we kind of resonate in that same sort of sphere of ideas. Yeah. For, first of all, I have to say, what a wise dad you had. That that sounds absolutely amazing to, you know, to have have that kind of wisdom already installed in you as a kid. I think most of us kind of, well, we, we learned it through trying and failing, and and maybe you know our parents said some of it, but just like to be able to articulate it that way, um, that was amazing. I think I didn't learn 
exactly what you said now until I actually uh, – I did join Tamber, which were, you know, mm-hmm. we had a chairman and we had a leadership board. And there was so much, you know, talk about philosophy. We, we discussed that it was just like beliefs and values and philosophy and, and that you could be guided by that. And I think that was such a, you know, life-changing experience for me uh, to hear. Uh, and, 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 and I also want to say these were not philosophers. These were like really hardcore businessmen. <laughs> so, so. But they also knew that in order to create this kind of environment, you had to create this kind of culture where people believed in something and were allowed to show up uh, and become the best version of themselves. And that was like certain fundamentals that makes that happen. And I think the, your your father's wisdom uh, captured that so well. So, yeah, and my father wasn't highly educated. I mean, he was a factory worker. He was an immigrant that came, moved to Canada uh, after he met my mom in England, and you know. So it, 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 it has nothing to do per se with how much education it is. I think it's a mindset. It's a mindset that we can adopt and that we can take on. And it, yeah, he, he, ta- he, he taught me that philosophy, but I actually had to experience failure and flop-ups and messing up for it to actually, uh, that's what he meant. You know, once experience taught me and I connected to my father's, if we can call it wisdom or his philosophy, that's when I connected the bridge and it's like, ah, oh, and that became sort of wisdom, if I may use that. And then that's kind of sat with me. But I think it's only through experience that you learn this, that, you know, you can read it in a textbook, fine. But I think experience knowledge is so much more valuable than simply just text knowledge, textbook knowledge. Yes, 100%. And then we jump back to, to our kids, right? Mm-hmm. And it is. It doesn't matter how much we and we want them to be happy and safe and all that. But we know that is from their challenges. Challenges they will learn. That's how they will be stronger. That's how they will build resilience. And and I think as parents, maybe we we protect our kids a bit too much sometimes because like yeah, they, well they will have to learn later then if they don't learn it earlier. Mm-hmm. You know? So it it is as you said, learning by doing. I think that goes for anything, and that is essential for innovation. Uh, it is learning by doing. You can't innovate by reading a textbook and follow a, you know, a template or like a, a list of things to do. You just have to go through the motion and do the experimenting and do the failing and all that. It's just part of the game. Um, yeah, I think that's so important because when we talk about psychological safety, you know, it's it's almost sometimes it goes too far where an organization will completely bubble wrap someone. So if they fall down, they'll kind of bounce. But you know what? I think it's the same thing, same philosophy when, you know, you see little kids playing or in some competition and everybody's a winner. That's not how life works. I mean, if, if kids don't understand, if, if, if adults, if any human being doesn't understand that sometimes you have to scrape your knees, sometimes you're going to have to, you know, get a little banged up and bruised up. But it's from that banged up and bruising up that we learn that we do become more resilient because resilient is nothing that's just given to us. It's something we have to earn. And it has, you have to go through the crucible of disappointment and pain and failure and rejection. Even those things don't feel good. They're actually, those emotions are some of the best teachers on this planet mm. from the human condition. Wait, you, you just said something. I, I just keep on, you know, jumping back to what you're saying. Cause I think this is, this is so interesting. Cause when you said that bubble wrapping thing, uh, I actually had that conversation with another client of mine who mm-hmm. wanted to work with uh, how to create psychological safety. 
and ended up bubble wrapping the whole organization. So it was so safe that people, and I said like, you know what, innovation actually doesn't happen just out of that. There has to be these frictions as well. It has to be, you know, sometimes you have to throw them out in the deep mm. water and just see if they swim as well. You can't just like have them back on the shore and feel safe because nothing will happen then. So I think like it's so interesting because we typically take these concepts uh, mm. and I know so many talk about psychological safety now and I'm a huge believer in it. But you have to like look at it a bit more nuanced than it's all about that because there's other things as well, you know, that you really have in order. And honestly, I mean, a lot of my jobs, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ex- say, oh, they were psychological safe. I mean, they didn't throw me under the bus when I made a mistake. <laughs> well, no, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> but no one told me that I was psychological. I just hoped I was, you know. So it's something about that as well. I think uh, some friction, some tension, some challenges. Um, and we must also be like dare to challenge others, but also to be challenged, you know. And that's part of it. And it, it, it innovation doesn't happen just like, Everyone's sitting around a, a, a table and agreeing on something. Like nothing new comes out of that. And we come from the Scandinavian consensus culture. Uh, and we also come, you know, we talk about it's so important to be kind. And as much as I love that whole philosophy of being kind, some people think that being kind is to not like uh, having any arguments or not having discussions mm-hmm. or not giving any. Uh, you know, have real feedback. And I'd say that's that's not being kind. You know, it's not kind to not do that. But so sometimes people become a, li- a little bit, I don't know, just like dancing around each other. And, mm. and uh, then someone suddenly says, oh, I disagree with that. You know, I really think we should try this. And it can actually liven up the whole crowd. Like finally someone has spoke up, you know. So being that person sometimes that does speak up and does challenge it and sometimes challenge it just to challenge it, uh, I think that's really important. Um, so, so back to like, how do you create these environments? You have to also look at the kind of people you have in a company or in a team. You have to look for people that actually see have the courage to speak up and do have these different kinds of ideas and have a diverse, um, you know, mind or way of thinking from from the rest of the group. Because one of the things that I think is most challenging and that I see in lots of companies mm-hmm. is. Uh, group think uh, like everyone kind of walk around and like say the same and think the same they come from the same schools or same education and they uh, you know it's dangerous it's really dangerous if you want to be uh, innovative and you want to kind of create something new so so that's an important part of it as well who do you actually have in the team and I, I think there's two things that uh, that you brought up. One is diversity, and there's the first one I'd like to talk about is what you you kind of brought up. But in my language, I might call them. There's two moral imperatives, meaning that imperative is something that's important, and we're driven by two things. And I think innovation means to sometimes cross swords about ideas, and that sometimes it, it will end up in some level of conflict, and. And I, coming back to what you said, you said being kind, you know, I always see these two moral imperatives of being uh, honest, speaking the truth, and benevolence, being nice and being kind. And I think a lot of people find having hard conversations, especially when it comes to innovation, per se, is that I have to either choose honesty versus benevolence, being nice. Hmm. 
and they they see it as as crossroads and so a lot of sometimes what i've seen from experience is that people will sacrifice honesty for being nice so, exactly what you said they won't address the issue because they don't want to rock the boat they don't want to hurt anyone but i think that's a very sort of short term perspective because they get so wrapped up in the here and now and how that conversation is going to make them emotionally feel and what they believe the other person's going to feel but i what you said, an innovative mindset in itself are, is someone who can take the longer perspective. They they know if I'm going to be honest, it will create some level of social pain and disappointment or whatever you want to call it. But in the long run, I'm also being nice because what that means is if I can balance benevolence with with um, honesty and take the long-term perspective, that means we can have a hard conversation now. Yes, it'll be emotionally hard-hitting for both of us but we'll get over that discomfort because we're not wrapped up in bubble wrap and so we can move things forward we can have a better product a better idea a better performance of whatever system we're trying to build together but if you can't have that hard conversation because you're thinking if i'm going to be honest i'm going to hurt them and then you you scrap that well for me that's not uh, sort of a real innovative type of mindset. And again, this is from a very layman's perspective. No, but you're spot on because, uh, and, and then boils back again to how how much um, you trust each other as people in order to be honest, in order to also feel it's safe to speak, speak your opinion. But I think uh, an underestimated um, thing to do, in especially like innovation teams or any kind of team, uh, including leadership team, is to have um, those really, really honest discussions uh, about how are we going to work together? How are we, you know, how, what is our way, our code? I call it like a culture code. Uh, how do we speak? How do we solve problems? If something that, like that happens, how do we solve that? Because when you do that, you actually create that kind of safe space where you have as a team agreed, you know, we are going to be mm -hmm. honest to it, with each other. We do it for the greater good. We are going to, if something doesn't work out, you know, work out, well, then we are going to tell each other. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be okay. We will know it comes from a good place. We know we believe in each other's good intentions. Mm -hmm. It can be as simple as that. Just have that really good, open, honest discussion. And I often uh, recommend doing that in the beginning of a project team, a, a team that's put together, you know, not going to solve this problem or, or create this product, whatever. Is like start out with a whole day with a team and just talk about how you're going to make this happen. How are you going to mm. talk together? Instead, most companies or most teams, they get this project plan and they start running. And then all these stuff happen along the way and they don't know how to handle it. So, and they never agreed that they should be honest with each other. So they end up not being honest with each other. So I said, you will save so much time if you start out every project, every, and sometimes even, you know, a team meeting with like, okay, how, how are we going to solve this together? How are we going to treat each other, talk to each other? What's okay? What's not okay? Uh, that's a underestimated uh, value to do in any kind of, situation when you are going to create or do something together with other people so as i understand you, you, what you're suggesting and from your experience is that it may be a good idea for a team a creative team an innovative team an innovative team excuse me they should have an alignment meeting on expectations so before we start talking about the project let's align on expectations of how we can confront each other 
Yes. Or how are we going to make this happen? How are we going to work together mm. as a team? Uh, what are the, the ways of communicating? How do we handle uh, unexpected issues? How do we, if someone in the team is not living up to, uh, you know, our agreement, how do we handle that? It's it's all about these interpersonal things that is taking so much energy and takes so much time. And it's actually one of the reasons why a lot of projects and why a lot of things don't work out. It is about hum- the human dynamics. So I'm just a huge believer in addressing human bina- uh, dima- dynamics um, mm. from the very beginning. Uh, and that is, uh, that is also what, you know, sometimes I, I go in and help teams uh, just start out with mm. and we say, what's a, what's a culture code uh, for, for, like, for this project? And then it can actually change a little bit for another project. It depends a little bit what you're there to do, right? Mm. So it's not like it's always the same. But if you are going to create a product that's going to change the world, you, you can't just like go around and pet each other on the back and say, oh, that's nice. You have to challenge each other. You have to challenge yourself. And, you know, you have to have a very uh, particular kind of environment to do that. Um, and I just think people give this too little thought in the beginning of every process, and it will benefit them a lot if they did. In part one, Anakin outlines her perspective on innovation, emphasizing the necessity of a trusting and free environment. She stresses the importance of allowing people to express unconventional ideas without the fear of ridicule, creating a psychological safe space, in other words. According to her, innovation hinges on the culture cultivated within an organization. It involves fostering creativity, curiosity, and addressing conflicts even if it means letting go of our cherished ideas, a process she describes as killing your darlings. Central to innovation is a collective mindset that transcends individual ego. Anakin suggests that celebrating efforts and embracing a growth mindset where failures are seen as opportunities to learn, well, that's essential. She believes in striking a delicate balance where psychological safety doesn't suppress the essential tension and challenges that naturally come with innovation. In part one, Anakin also delved into the critical problem of groupthink and the delicate equilibrium between being honest and being benevolent. Anakin recommends establishing a customized culture code that outlines how the team will interact, how it will communicate, problem solve together, and how it resolve conflicts. So now let's slip back into the stream with Anakin R. Day, where we will continue exploring the interaction of culture, innovation, and resilience. When we're thinking about innovation, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's a creative process, it's organic, it flows. But that would beg the question to have the infrastructure that we've talked about to create an innovative culture I mean, how much does it have to be actively sort of cultivated? I mean, is it something we can just let grow like a crazy garden? Or is it something we need to cultivate and to manicure, per se, to create such uh, a vibrancy of culture? I I believe in the latter. Uh, Just as I don't believe you should just let your culture happen by chance and hope for the Mm. best. I don't hope you should do that with innovation either. And just like, yeah, just like, let's create that environment and hope that people will innovate. I think you actually have to put things in structure and in place and to, to you know, uh, trigger certain things or encourage it or just like make things happen. 
Um, and that could be like dedicated meetings, talking about things like that. Uh, it could be ways of, uh, you know, I'm a huge supporter and believer in feedback culture as well, but putting it into a system, not just hoping that wh whoever tries to or feels like giving feedback gives feedback, but some of the most uh, successful projects uh, that mm. I've seen are people who are so have embedded feedback culture so strongly in what they do. So for every little task, every you know, they sit down, like, how did it, this work? How, how, what can we learn from this? Mm. So whenever one person made a mistake, like everyone could learn from that mistake because that was part of it, you know, and then everyone around the room could come with suggestions. So how can you do it better next time? And it all came from a good place. So the person actually was only grateful to get all these, as I said, free coaching, someone uh, called it, because they got so many ideas. <laughs> how can just like solve that problem better next time? Hmm. And it, it creates that, but it, it doesn't just happen by itself. You have to put some kind of effort into making these kind of uh, conversations find place as well. So what I hear is that, you know, companies have to be very cognizant to create a space where after a project or something has happened, where they can actually sort of do a sort of a, a diagnosis, like look at it as a case study. And hopefully the emotional weight is no longer there because it's kind of the project being done and dusted. But now we can use it as a case study and sort of draw best practices or best learnings from that. Is that what I understand you're saying? Yes, yes. And it's not easy, you know, because um, also what happens is as humans, we don't love receiving feedback. I mean, it's very human not wanting feedback. So even though you know it will make you better, you still will want to avoid it at all costs because it it hurts. Um, I can I can actually give an example from my own um, my own work because please the way I, I stand in front of people if I'm on a stage or I have a workshop or a group and all that and I always want to improve. I want to be better. Um, and I have a pretty, you know, I can be pretty judgmental on my own behalf. So, so mm -hmm. I, I do have a lot of like <laughs> anal analysts, analysts going on. Uh, yeah, the uh, self criticism. <laughs> yeah, the self criticism. That's pretty hard. So, um, so I was so because I was a promoter of feedback culture, I wanted to be a good mm. role model for that. So I was like, okay, so after every workshop, after every talk, like come and tell me what did I do good, what can I do better, and all that, right? And then I realized as I was standing on stage, I was getting nervous about what people were going to say to me when I w walked off the stage, right? So I was just starting to feel the whole emotion of like how I didn't want that feedback uh, because I actually just want to be told how great I was uh, just because that's like human nature. Mm -hmm. But then again, I did want to get better. So what I learned through my own experience and it's also what I advise others is like, so when you uh, you have a, a project, you're, you're like, you're ending something. Don't just do it right away. I mean, don't go like, okay, you were on stage there. This was good. This was not so good because you're very vulnerable at, at certain times, right? Mm. So let the self-reflection happen first and just like things land a little bit. And then, so typically what I tell people is like, hey, um, can we talk tomorrow or the day after? Like today I'm on a high or today I'm, I'm, I, I just would enjoy the fact that I think I pulled it off. Uh, it mm -hmm. feels good. Tomorrow, can we talk about what I could do better? Because then I will be ready. So I think when we talk about feedback culture, and this goes for teams and individuals and all that, um, I think sometimes you just like think you should just throw out feedback here and there and all the time. But because human nature is our strong dislike or being told that what we're not good mm -hmm. at, Having that structure 
around it again, just like, and, and also the timing of it. So when is it good to give feedback? Well, it is when it's landed, you had a little bit of breathing and reflecting and then, okay, let's talk mm. about how we can do this better next time. So I, th I think that's also an important, because sometimes I work with companies and they say, oh, we have a strong feedback culture. It's like everyone kind of shouting out to each other, oh, you shouldn't have done it that way or you could have done this better. You know, and it's like, that's not feedback culture. That's just like being harsh to each other. Mm. So that's also, I think, we need to, like, everything needs to be a certain balance, you know. It's, it's, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray zones in between. And to navigate that, I think, is a really important um, responsibility we have, like, as leaders. And, and, and uh, if you're leading a project, it's just like, where, how would we like to create this for mm -hmm. the best and optimal results? No, I think it's it's very important. I mean, you, you need someone at the sort of the top that's leading leading such processes or a team with someone it doesn't matter if they're introverted or extroverted but that they have psychosocial emotional intelligence that they are able to tap into people's thoughts to understand the narrative they're assigning to it to tap into the emotions and to address those emotions whether they are positive or negative we can just call it that and also to understand sometimes what the behavior is right in, in, in a simple sense that you have a leader or a project head who can tap into the head, the heart, and the hand and look at those three areas to, to create sort of that inclusive, diverse culture in, in order to, to spin off some sort of innovative thinking or innovative mindset. Does, does this kind of, is this some, some of the things you saw at Tanberg at your previous job or working with some of the clients? Absolutely. And, and uh, I, I also love what you say. I mean, it's, it's so many different parts. You, you can't only speak to people's heads, for example. You mm -hmm. have to speak to their hearts as well. You also have to inspire them to actually do something, right? So it's all that. Uh, and and uh, when you are able to, you know, awaken people's hearts and their passion for a project or whatever mm -hmm. they do, you know, they will be doing, they will be running, you know, all that. But sometimes you think that, oh, no, it's all the rational. No, it's emotional. I mean, innovation is emotional. Culture is emotional. Business is emotional. Leadership is emotional. Because this is like, and, and that's, people are emotional most of all, right? We think yeah, we're yeah. rational, but we're emotional beings. And I think when you, you, you realize that, Everything gets a little bit easier when you realize it's all—it's not all about rationale here. It's actually how do you um, get people to want to be part of it and to give it all and take those risks to in order to to create something extraordinary. Um, and I, my favorite poet Maya Angelou, she had this beautiful saying, and she always said that, or she used to say that uh, it's um, it's not about what you do, it's not about what you say, but it's how you make people feel. And I think that goes to culture and to leadership and to innovation as well. I think that has a lot to do with how our memories are formed, right? Because there's always a level of emotions, you know, and memories are only formed by the emotional significance. So if, if I asked you what you did last Tuesday for lunch. Oh, I had an amazing spaghetti vongole with white wine. <laughs> yeah, in Tuscany. Yeah, yeah. But then that, that's emotional significance. You remember it, right? Innovation is that if you have the emotions that are associated with the thought process, it just lights up the brain. And then we can also draw from experience. And usually what we draw from are things that are, have uh, uh, emotional significance, that have uh, emotional gravitas. And that's how we can kind of fuse this. 
a lot of organizations, I know that they're fast paced. They got so much coming at them. And it actually, for them, it's actually a luxury if they can actually find the time in a working day or a working week to actually take apart something so they can learn from it. What suggestions would you make, Anakin? You know, so pragmatically, if someone, a manager comes up to you and says, look, Anakin, you know, th- that's great. But in the reality of our corporation and what we're in our business, this 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 is not going to fly. How would you convince him or her that, no, this is an important process of the innovative mindset if you're going to stay resilient, if you're going to stay relevant moving forward? Well, one of the the very simple, powerful models I sometimes share with, with leaders who say that, and you should know that most people, you already know that, that most leaders actually do say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, we don't have time for this culture stuff, or we don't have time yeah. to talk about innovation. We're here to get mm. work done. I was like, okay, well, that's actually what it is, because mm. culture is how we get work done. Anyway, but then I ask them, so, so people are running really hard, uh, fast, and working really hard. Um, how do you know that they're running towards the right place and working on the right things and spending their, all this time they are working on what will actually take you where you need to go? And um, I'm sure you're aware of Simon Sinek's The Golden uh, Circle. Like he has Oh, this- yeah. He's, he's from the same province I am in Canada. So, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. Not yeah, far so, from where I was uh, grew up, actually. Really? Yeah, well, yeah. And he, yeah, that that those three gold, these three circles, um, are are so brilliant in their simplicity. Um, I wish I had come up with those, by the way. Just the why, them. what, and how, right? Yeah, e- exactly. Yes. So it starts with uh, the inner circle is the why, and then comes the how, and then comes the what. And what he says, like most companies, and he's referring to Apple, for example, like not Apple, like other companies, mm. they start the what. So they talk about what we do, what we create, what we mm. have, what, what our products do, and all that. Um, and but very rarely talk about why. Wh- wh- why do these products mm. exist? Why are they here? Right. Well, that goes also for um, for work. So I say, so okay. So so you have this team, and they're doing all these what's. They have this project. They have these these um, to do list. They have these meetings, and they have these uh, whatever they are doing. Um, but uh, do people really know why they're doing what they're doing? Do they have an understanding? What is the greater purpose of this product or what is the greater purpose of our company and and what am I doing so I said if you start with start with the purpose start with who you are what you're here to achieve um, what is your overall objectives and goals and then the next one will be how which is the second circle mm. how are you going to make work work together to make this happen what kind of culture do you need to build in order mm. to fulfill that purpose and then the third outer circle is what what are you going to do I said, the problem is that you just do the what's and you have your team has no idea of why they're actually doing it. So how can you know they are doing the right thing? And that's usually like a little bit of eye opener um, mm. because they said like, well, I'm not actually sure they do know why they're here. And I'm not sure if they are spending the time on the right things. I said, well, okay, well, that might be worthwhile to spend a day or two to investigate that, to see that you're all aligned on the why and aligned around the how. And then you can just let them free and then they come out and run on the what's. But at least, you know, they're working on the things or, or doing things that make sense. And that is supporting the business and not just doing it because someone once told them to do it. And it might have been a good idea back then, but now maybe it doesn't make sense anymore. But they don't know because they haven't, you know, been invited to have that thought process of going through why, how and what. 
I mean, if we broaden the altitude and the latitude of this conversation of what you've just talked about, what you've just articulated, the why, what, and how, I mean, if, if you look at one of the greatest fighting forces on this planet, it's the Americans. I mean, the American Marines, whatever, and how they've influenced NATO. And just back to what you said, you know, if if the commanders will tell the what of the mission and why they're doing that mission, so they have the reasoning why they're doing it, because sometimes the platoon or the soldiers out there, communications may get cut off. But what they figured out, if they understand the what and the why of the mission, then they can figure out the how of implementation. And I think that is where you have centralized command and decentralized control is so important. And that, that comes to the innovative process. Again, now I'm, I'm just making sort of links here to, to increase the, the broadness perspective. Because those soldiers don't really know what and why why they're doing it. It's hard for them to achieve the mission. And I think sometimes that's what you, you see the difference between almost like the Ukrainians and the Russians. The Ukrainians have that ability to adapt and constantly uh, uh, evolve to the situations where the Russians become very stagnant because everything is centralized command and centralized control. And they don't allow the implementation or the innovative thinking across the battlefield. So this is not just in the meeting room or the laboratory. This is also real life, you know, combat battlefield experience. So everything you're talking about, it can, it, it, it has, you can see its imprint on so many different aspects of what domains in different domains, if I may say it that way. Yes. No, no, that's, that's the brutal truth. It's, uh, if people don't know why they're doing what they're doing, they will just perform a task. They would, mm. you know, their hearts and their even though even their minds won't be in it. They it would just be the hands, right? The hands are doing what the hands are told. But if you really want to engage people, you will have to take them through, you know, the the reason behind it. And that's again, again, you see the most passionate teams, the one that feel they're on a purpose, are also the ones that are most successful. And there's so much research done on that, uh, you know, from the business world where you see. Uh, investing in people's, you know, how they feel about the company. Mm. Like they feel it's meaningful and they feel they're valued and they're enjoying their jobs. Mm. Um, I mean, those companies are up to 50% more profitable than others. So it's it's like, it makes perfect business sense. But a lot of companies just don't think about it in that way because they think that is something, oh, that's for a rainy day. Like, so, so one of the things when we're coming back to the uh, culture myth that we started with, Mm. Um, one of the culture myths that I hear a lot is that, um, well, culture, that's this, this, this soft thing, right? That's the, 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 the soft stuff that, um, we, we, you know, uh, maybe we, we do it, uh, another time or we can delegate it to mm. HR or we can have someone else do that. And that's when I say that's, that's what you got wrong because there's nothing soft about culture. Culture is mm. hard. It's really hard. It's, it's, it's not easy to work with. Uh, but it does also generate hardcore results. Um, and also because it's hard uh, means that a lot of leaders avoid it because you know what's really hard about culture? It is about values. It's about mindsets. It's about behaviors. It's about emotions. It's about creating, you know, building relationships. It's about human dynamics. All these things that most leaders never learn in business school and haven't really the skills or the competence or... Uh, ability to to do something about it. And that's why I think a lot of leaders avoid it. Mm. But when I show the data and the statistic and everything, that this is actually what 
drives your business. This is what creates result. How on earth would you even think about delegating that? That's that's your job. You're here to, to run a successful business. And these are the people who's going to make that happen. So don't say culture is soft. Culture is mm-hmm. hardcore strategy. And, you know, if you want to innovate, that's uh, you cannot innovate without making that investment and making that focus also in creating that kind of culture. Yeah, I think we, we've addressed two or three of the myths. One is this, it's not soft stuff, it's actually hard stuff, right? It's something mm-hmm. that has real world, world impact on strategy or performance and such. And I think the other one is, is that culture just happens. No, it's something that you have to cognizantly cultivate and grow and to constantly address. And there was another one you, you talked about. Yeah, I was wondering if you could elaborate why culture is not just about perks and how it can actually influence collective behavior and habits in an organization. Yeah, because maybe this is the the most normal one. When I ask um, people, uh, even executives, like, what what is your culture like? And they say, oh, our culture is great. I'm like, great, tell me about it. Well, you know, we we, we have free lunch and once a month um, people can bring their dogs to work. And we have a ping pong table in the lunchroom. And we we have a ping pong table. So our (laughs) culture is great. And that's when I say, you know what, what you just talked about, um, that's perks. That's a great thing to have. And and I I salute you for for having that in your company. Keep on doing that. But that's not culture. Because culture is actually about collective behaviors. It's what Mm. people do every day. It's how they show up. It's how they collaborate. It's how they solve problems. It's how they build your products, treat your customers. It's all about what they do. And it comes from a place of values and mindsets and and. To uh, think that just because you have certain things, and people might be happy about in the moment, but it doesn't in any way define behavior, you know, give people any kind of guidance mm-hmm. of how they're going to show up at work and how they're going to treat each other. So that's where what we talked about earlier, like a culture mm-hmm. code comes in. Uh, and, and that's not really hard to make, you know. It's, it's not – a lot of companies have values, and unfortunately, a lot of companies – don't use their values. So so it's kind of lost a little bit of its magic. I'm a huge believer in values as long as they're lived by and they're real and authentic and people are guided by them and inspired by them and recognize them, then values is amazing. But so many companies just have their values on the wall and no one knows they are and don't really care about and don't recognize them in leadership behavior. And that's when I said, like, typically the, what you can do is just sit down and decide, okay, how are we going to work together? What is What's going to be our culture code, the way we solve problems, the way we treat each other, the way we, um, you know, treat our customers. It, it's all those little tiny things. What what we do, what's, what's the do's and the don'ts kind of our day-to-day interactions. That is not a big, a difficult job. Uh, but so few do that. And that's what I said. Like, okay, you have all these perks. Now get yourself a culture code as well and you'll be good to go. It sounds like you need to prioritize the practice of some of this. When I'm in and out of organizations, sometimes I see there's a discrepancy between what sort of, let's say, an executive's intention and employees' perceptions when it Mm. comes to culture. I mean, if, if I can call it this gap, how can we bridge this gap between, you know, leadership's sort of in, uh, expectations and what actually people, um, their employees' perceptions when it comes to culture? 
Yeah, and there's lots of research on this, and it shows like in average, I think like sixty nine to seventy five percent of executives think their culture is great, and around forty percent of employees agree. So that's kind of like multiple uh, mm. studies show that yeah, it's it's a big gap between mm. that. Um, and I think it has a lot to do, uh, well, and, and I, I honestly believe they think so. I don't think they're lying. I, they think so. But the culture probably does feel different from the top than it does, like, lower down in the organization. And the bigger the organization, the bigger the gap between how people experience their realities and, and maybe even maybe even what the leadership wants and thinks, you know, that they're doing. So, so it's a lot about listening uh, and having a dialogue. Um, and a lot of people does like engagement surveys and do feedback and all that, which is great. But I don't think that's enough because I don't think you get the, the full picture and the honest answers always. So I always mm. recommend, you know, to be out there and talk to people and, and get some feedback. And, and again, uh, you have to... to deliberately build the level of trust and, and so people can be honest with you because if they're not you know you you're still being uh, oblivious of what it's it's really like but i also think um so one of the things i'm seeing the larger the company the greater there's this um this level between uh, executive team and the people on the ground if i can use that expression yeah uh, there's very often like a mid-layer, uh, and I see it especially in the U.S., to be quite honest with you, um, where you have a lot of like uh, a leadership level that is very um, dense in a way because they, they are used to having power and influence and, and used to things being done in a certain way and used to be having more or less the last word. So, so sometimes when I can talk to a CEO, and I can talk to someone on the ground, it's a big uh, difference. But I can see a lot of the challenge often is in the middle. So you have to handle the middle, which is like the middle leadership. Uh, mm, Mid-management and such. Mid yes, because there's a lot of, uh, we talked about it earlier, there's a lot of egos, like people who has, they have worked hard and they fought their whole life to get to a certain level. So, you know, I can from one one perspective understand they want to hold on to their roles but in a world that is moving so fast and also in a company where you need to innovate and question things and challenge things, you also have to challenge the way you're organized. You have to challenge how, how uh, decisions are made because it doesn't matter how great innovation comes from the rest of the organization if it just stops somewhere uh, in the middle because it's threatening someone. Either it's uh, you know the power or just like uh, not invented here. There's just like all these different reasons why that can happen. So, so when I work with bigger companies, I typically, uh, you know, recommend to, to work in a very, like, dedicated team with direct access to top management in order to kind of avoid that, that stop. It's like the stopping in, in the system in a way, uh, which unfortunately still is very, very normal um, in a lot of companies. I mean, what, what you're talking about is sort of that density, that thickness in the mid management and that kind of it's almost like a syrup or molasses that can slow down the adaptability i mean especially in the current times when you literally see signals of the decoupling of globalization where you see you know regions are becoming very they're, they're kind of fragmenting into their own such with climate change and ai and machine learning and the war on the edge of europe it, it challenges everything that we understand there is no more normal i think 
change is just part of what we need to accept. Like strategy is part of a company. We, we focus on strategy. I think change has to be part of that. And part of that ability to adapt to change is to have an innovative culture. And so everything you talk about, you know, it can sound like an academic, uh, very pedagogist uh, conversation between you and I. Anakin, but everything we're saying is so pragmatic and practical and it has real world implications. And the faster you can get a feedback culture up online, when you can have constructive conflict, when you can have all, all the different various elements we've spoken of just in the last hour, then I think that makes, makes a company and a team very resilient, very robust, but you need to go through the crucible. Sometimes you have to experience it and not just listen to to people pondering about this but actually take it and do something with it yeah at least that's my two cents yeah <laughs> that was a bit more than two cents but they were very good <laughs> okay five cents it was a whole nickel <laughs> yeah no no but it, you're, you're you're so right uh jason and i think um you know if I should pinpoint one thing that i think is like the biggest showstopper for innovation and why mm. most you know companies and teams never actually get to their full potential mm. uh it's fear a lot of people are scared and i'm not now i'm talking about scared in a way that they're scared of change mm. they're scared of uh not being able to keep on to the jobs they are scared of um being ridiculed i mean there's so there's so much fear going on and then to add on it there's companies out there that thinks that like a burning platform message is a good idea. So what happens like when people get a burning, like do this or, you know, that will happen. Well, they're, well, you know, all about this, what yeah. happens to their brain, right? They just like freeze or they fight or they, well, they go into threat response. Yeah, exactly. And there's absolutely zero innovation that happens for a place from there because when people are fearful and scared, mm -hmm. they are so, focused on just protecting themselves and staying safe. So anything that's new will feel threatening. And innovation is, per definition, new things, right? Mm -hmm. So which kind of takes me back to the beginning again, like innovation, you cannot create real innovation. You cannot have innovation culture unless you create the environment for it. It has to start like mm. with with how people are feeling. Fear just cannot be part of it. And I, I, I think fear can be a good thing because it can protect us, but it's how we optimize that fear. Because if we take that fear and we look at how we can take it and how we can find a sense of control, how we can use it as a tool and not something that can overwhelm us and drown us. So if, because I think a lot of innovation sometimes comes right in the middle of turbulent times in a storm when you are forced to change. You know, the environment says you either do or you die. And then we are forced to change. And I think human beings, you know, naturally, we adapt to change. I mean, we have always, that's why you find us in every climb and every part of this planet, even in space. You know, we can adapt and we can evolve and change. But yes, if we become crippled by the fear, then that's a problem. And you know, when this podcast talks a lot about individual resilience, and sometimes it's not to shy away from the fear, but it's to walk into the storm. It's to embrace the struggle. It's to embrace the suck. Because when you go into it, then you can learn from that fear. And that can actually, that can actually crystallize into something. We can actually weaponize that fear because all of a sudden we, we feel the fear, but we see it as information. Okay, what do I want to do with this data? 
Let's focus on what we control, what we can influence. Let's create a sense of certainty of what we can do. At the top of this conversation, we talked about not always worrying about what the outcome is because the outcome will be shaped by future. We can use it for orientation and direction. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, guys and gals, how can we invest our effort to create some sort of stability? So we can use that fear actually as a fuel, but not something that will drown us, but will drive us. Yes. No, I, I 100% agree with that. And I actually think there's, uh, there's a huge difference, but there's like two, two kinds of fear. Mm. Fear is the one that you feel, that the bad fear uh, is the one you feel like something is, is happening to you that is so overwhelming that you just like are paralyzed, right? The yeah. other one is actually that the one you make happen yourself. And I'll be the first one to say that. I do so many fearful things. I've done so many fearful things. And every fearful thing that I've done, even though I'm scared, has led me to a greater place. You know, not one single time will I say, oh, I was so afraid. I wish I hadn't done that. You know, it was always a good idea to do that. But it was scary, you know. So that's what I call like healthy fear or the, the, the kind of fear you have. You don't have control over it, but you actually initiate it because you believe that at the other side there will like be something something else so but but the, the crippling fear and that's like the, the the also the reason why i'm mentioning it is that i see that especially in the corporate world and and when we talk about this these layers of of uh, the density and the organizations that is driven by fear and and that is why i think nothing changes there you know that's why it's a very constant because fear is 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 so strong but um you cannot and i agree with you you cannot have real innovation on unless you are willing to do, you know, scary things. And that's mm. more the healthiest uh, fear that I would uh, would call it. Fear does trigger the threat response or the what we call the F3 response. There's flight. Well, it means you can run away. There's freeze. You can choke up. But I think the third one, even though it is fear-based, it's the fight. It's mm. to roll up your sleeves and go into the fight. You know, get your knuckles a little bloody if i may use those terms because i think the fight response of the f3 response of fight flight and freeze is the most productive as long as we sort of we're cognizant of how we are moving into a fight i mean you could be a street fighter and just kind of throw your arms around or you can be a martial artist someone who goes into the conflict to protect to move things forward but in in the sense of what i'm talking about here is sort of a not a constraint, but you slow things down in order to make better reflective responses and not just to be reactive to the situation when it comes to the fight response. And I think that can be a true, true, pure fuel that can burn to, to create innovation. And I see that with a lot of individuals a lot of the times, right? The fear moves from crippling to enabling, if I may use those terms. That's, you know, that's really interesting. I have not thought about it that way. I have actually thought about fight as a not neg not positive thing. Uh, mm. I've been thinking that uh, fight and, and are typically, you know, working with organizational change or something. Mm -hmm. And we see these, these, uh, these three Fs showing up, right? And then I've been thinking about fight as a way to fight the change, you know, fight mm -hmm. against it and all that. But what you're saying now is, is actually it could be like fight, use it as like a, a, a energy a, a force in order to, to weaponize it so you can move in. You can deal yeah. with the, 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 the challenge. Yeah. Oh, OK. I think I'm going to start talking about it a little bit differently. That's 
<laughs> no, <laughs> no, but, but it was good. It was good. Huh? <laughs> I just haven't, uh, thought, haven't thought be, about because it. I think it's it's a really good way of moving forward. It's almost like you can't calm down because when you're in a threat response, you're in a threat response. I think I've spoken to this sort of ad nauseum on this podcast, but the difference between anxiety and excitement is what the story would tell us because physiologically they have identical markers. You, you can't tell them apart, but what changes is the mindset. And I think it's just that, you know, from a crippling mindset to a enabling mindset is to take the fear response, the same fight response. One could be just to kind of thrash out and lash out, or the other one could be a much more calculated strategic move in that in order to fight our way through this, right? And that's why I've always seen it both on an individual level and at a, at a group level. And that's just the way I've interpreted it. And that's how I sometimes help individuals and teams to get through things, right? It's not to, it's actually to use your threat response in a good way. And I, I think that's the whole philosophy from my perspective of martial arts, like literally physical martial arts, because it's not just a physical self-defense, but it's also a mental self-defense in order to protect yourself, right? Mm. And so that's why I can sometimes see a lot of this cross-fertilization of philosophies, whether it's the meeting room or the dojo, in a sense. It's, it's interesting because I'm just like reflecting on because you're a man and you do martial arts and I'm a a woman and I like to dance <laughs> and then you know it's like words have different meanings <laughs> uh, but um, but I but I agree with you and I think it's it's interesting perspective and I also want to share something that I do when I talk about how do you handle fear because okay mm. so it's there and yes mm. you can fight and freeze and fight and all that but for me it's also a lot about like uh, how do you change your mindset around the fear or the story and the stories we tell ourselves. Um, mm. And so many times, and I mean, I do it myself as well. You kind of come into that worst case scenario kind of story. Like there's something that's really scary. And then there's a movie that starts playing in your mind and mm. it sounds really scary. Um, and uh, for me personally, I, I just switch, switch it over and, and like really work on like, what's the best case scenario. And then I start playing that movie instead and think like, Oh, all the great things are going to happen. And I also done this with teams who are like focusing so much of all the, the threats around them and all the reasons why this project or this uh, company, whatever, you know, it might fail. And then uh, I, I kind of help them switch around and say, okay, well, let's, let's decide to play like a different kind of movie where everything goes well. What does that look like? Mm. And sometimes you just need to have like a different way of seeing things. And then suddenly someone can say, well, I haven't thought about it that way before, but hey, then we might want to do like this. Because it kind of opens up mm. a different, I think, channel in your mind where you kind of actually can be more creative and be more optimistic as well about the future. Not only be dooms and glooms and fearful, but actually like, okay, yeah, there's there's an upside with this, this challenging and fearful thing. There's actually something good that can come out of it. So let's let's kind of start focusing on that. That's a great story to illustrate the idea of innovative thinking because you're asking questions of, possible permutations of a positive future so we're thinking about people start thinking about possibilities and opportunities that actually comes back to what i was saying about you know the fight response is like okay fight to build something fight to look how we can push through this storm to come out on the other end what are some possibilities and opportunities and how can we influence that what do we have to do and i i guess that that 
that begs the entire innovative process, right? It's starting maybe with the end in mind and then back or reverse engineering to what we have now and to deal with the realities. Okay, this this is not going to float, but how do we get around that obstacle or that that pitfall or that uh, that hindering uh hin- that hin- hindrance? Yeah. <laughs> a little, my little Norwegian slipped in there. <laughs> yes. Well, brilliant, Anakin. I mean, we're coming close to the top of the hour and such. I was wondering, when it comes to the innovative mindset, when it comes to the culture code, as you so eloquently put it, was there something that our listeners should take away and listen uh, or think about? I'm sorry. Well, um, I think you said it earlier about that uh, taking time to reflect a bit. I think that's that's an undervalued uh, thing in our society is to mm. just sometimes just stop and reflect a little bit. Uh, and I think it has to do with us as individuals, and I think it has to do as you know as businesses, uh, because as the world is changing, and um, well, we have to change with it. Mm. Uh, it is not like the natural thing to do. The natural thing to do is to just keep on doing things the way you've always done it because it's safe and you know how to do it. But if you really want to be um, a part of a, an exciting future, you need to probably, you know, start making some changes. And what I'm seeing a lot of you are doing is a little bit like uh, desperate change. Like, oh, we have to change this and this and that. And like someone comes and the oh, yes, and then someone reads something and someone hears something. And then you do all these different things and it just creates chaos. So I'm a huge believer in taking a step back, even though things are just crazy around you. Take a step back and and think a bit and reflect and discuss and make some sound and good decisions. Agree on the way forward, like where you want to go and how has all these changes uh, created or has it changed the direction of your company? Has uh, all this influenced the culture of your company? Are there things you need to do in order to work better together, um, just doing that, I think, will just make anyone, like in your life and in your families and, you know, in your teams and your businesses, just so much more effective and happy as well. Because I think when we're kind of back to, we know why we're doing what we're doing and, and it's aligned with um, with how we're, you know, the world around us are changing and evolving you know, it, it, we will enjoy the process more and we will get to where we need to go also much faster and better. Well, Anakin, I think that's a brilliant statement to to end the episode on. You know, this conversation, even though it was about innovation, it it, it forced my brain to make some connections from sort of dis, to, to different subjects and different domains that I, I didn't think I would make the connection. So thanks for that. You kind of created some <laughs> innovative mindset in me today. No, I I really enjoyed it. It's always so much fun to talk to you, Jason. I, I yeah, I, I learn a lot as well. So it's two of us. Brilliant. Oh uh, yeah, no, it was fun. Thank you again for your time, Anakin. Nurturing an innovative culture is a multifaceted journey. It starts with gleaming insights from past projects and fostering cultural feedback. It encourages deep reflection, encompassing both emotions and cognition. But here's the heart of it. Culture isn't a soft concept. It's the backbone of your organization. It's about our values, mindsets, behaviors, and emotions. It's a force that propels your business forward, not merely a ping pong table in the lunchroom. 
values matter, but they must be lived. They must be genuine. They must be inspiring. Having them framed on the wall won't cut it if people don't generally embrace them. Finding a unique culture code means collectively deciding how to solve problems, building trust, and determining how you engage with customers on a daily basis, how we engage with each other as colleagues on a daily basis. However, a challenge arises when there's a disconnect between a leadership's vision of culture and how employees perceive it, especially in larger organizations. Now, to bridge this gap, well, you need open dialogue, active listening, and continuous feedback, all firmly grounded in trust. The biggest roadblock to unleashing an organization's full potential is often the fear of change, the fear of the new. When individuals feel threatened, innovation becomes stagnant. It grinds to a halt. Now, to break through this barrier, it's essential to maintain ongoing communication, to engage in meaningful conversations, and to establish clear expectations. These steps are crucial for dismantling the obstacles that hinder companies from reaching their full and their maximum potential. In such an episode as, as this, it's so hard to encapsulate and summarize everything that has been said over an hour, an hour and change. So what I suggest is hit that rewind button and listen to what Anakin has to say because there's a lot of wisdom, depth, and a lot of experience that can be pulled that you can apply to your day-to-day. And a big shout out to you, Anakin, for your time, your insights, sharing your knowledge and experience. I really appreciate it. It's always fun to talk to you because we are—we <laughs> don't have a planned script per se. Far from it. It's just an organic flow of ideas and thoughts and this back and forth, which leads to a very natural and authentic conversation, which I learned so much from. So thank you again, Anakin. If any of you would uh, would like to reach out to Anakin, I will leave all her contact information in the show notes. But here we are at the finishing line of another episode. For those of you who follow me on my socials, such as LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and such... Please, I appreciate it when you like, but if you could also share the post, this will help me to reach more people to spread the word of resilience, equanimity, and well-being. And until the next time we continue this conversation, keep well, keep strong, and we'll speak soon.